Welcome to a Federalist Society faculty book podcast discussing Professor Kurt Lash's new book, The 14th Amendment and the Privileges and Immunities of American Citizenship. Kurt Lash, who is the Guy Raymond Jones Chair in Law and Director of the Program in Constitutional Theory, History, and Law at the University of Illinois College of Law, is joined by Elizabeth Price Foley who is a professor of law at the Florida International University College of Law. As always, the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speakers. And now, Professor Lash. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. My thanks to the Federal Society for hosting this podcast and for Elizabeth for being here to engage in a conversation about privileges or immunities of American citizenship. The book itself explores the original understanding of the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. And that clause declares, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Now, most scholars believe that this clause was supposed to be the text that required the states to protect individual rights. Unfortunately, in the late 19th century, the Supreme Court dismissed the Privileges or Immunities Clause and instead tried to expand the scope of the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause under a doctrine known as Substantive Due Process. Now, that doctrine has never been convincingly explained by the court, and it's widely ridiculed by constitutional scholars. Instead, For decades, scholars have encouraged the Supreme Court to take another look at the Privileges or Immunities Clause as the proper text for protecting rights against state abridgment. The Supreme Court, however, has been reluctant to do so, uh, given the lack of any historical account of the clause's original meaning, and probably also due to their fear that enforcing the clause would open the door to a potentially unlimited category of unenumerated rights. This book, then, is an attempt not only to present a historical understanding of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, but also to provide a historical basis for fixing the Supreme Court's broken approach to individual rights under the 14th Amendment. Now, just to lay out the bottom line of the book, I believe that the historical record strongly suggests that the Privileges or Immunities Clause was understood as protecting those personal rights expressly secured in the federal Constitution. This justifies, for example, incorporation of the Bill of Rights against the states. The clause does not, however, transform unenumerated common law rights into absolute national privileges or immunities. In other words, the text, properly understood, does not hide Pandora's box. So what I'd like to do is maybe take just a few minutes uh, to describe um, the general historical argument of the book, and then I'll turn it over to Elizabeth and we can just have a, a general conversation. Now, In terms of how I explore the historical evidence in the book, I do so by way of a three-phase investigation of the historical evidence. First, the book explores the meaning of the terms, privileges and immunities, in the years leading up to the Civil War and the adoption of the 14th Amendment. And here I identify two strains of privileges or immunities. One set belonged to citizens of the several states, and were granted equal protection under the Comedy Clause of Article 4. A second and different set of privileges and immunities, however, were those belonging to citizens of the United States, 
and most often mentioned in United States treaties, these rights involve those liberties enumerated in the text of the federal constitution. The difference between these two antebellum sets of privileges or immunities then becomes a central focus of the second part of the book, where I explore the actual framing of the Privileges or Immunities Clause by the members of the 39th Congress in 1866. Now, the man who drafted the Privileges or Immunities Clause, John Bingham, actually produced two different drafts. His first draft of the Privileges or Immunities Clause used the language of the Comedy Clause and its reference to the rights of citizens in the several states. This draft was understood by Bingham's colleagues, however, as doing nothing more than authorizing federal enforcement of the equal protection principles of the Comedy Clause. Bingham, however, wanted his amendment to do much more than simply require equal enforcement of state law. Bingham repeatedly insisted that states be required to enforce the absolute protections of the Federal Bill of Rights. But once Bingham realized that his initial draft would not have that effect, he withdrew his own proposal and he went back to the drawing board. Weeks later, Bingham emerged with a second and final draft, this time using the language of United States treaties and their reference to the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. According to the antebellum understanding of this language, this would require states to protect all constitutionally enumerated rights, including those listed in the first eight amendments. And this is exactly how the second draft was explained to Congress by men like Jacob Howard and the proposal was quickly adopted by the 39th Congress and it was sent to the states for ratification. In the third and final critical phase of the historical investigation of, um, of the clause that I put forth in the book, I consider the public discussion of the proposed 14th Amendment. Now, although most scholars believe that there was little discussion of the proposed privileges or immunities clause, in fact, there was a robust debate about the rights of citizens of the United States in 1866. The discussion took place as part of the congressional election debates of 1866 as Republicans battled with Democrats for control of the 40th Congress. Both parties made the 14th Amendment the focus of their congressional campaigns. Democrats insisted that the amendment was not necessary since states were perfectly capable of enforcing fundamental American liberties. That argument, however, exploded during the summer of 1866 when Louisiana state officials led a riot against a peaceful assembly of freedmen who were seeking to amend the Louisiana Constitution. The riot left scores of freedmen dead or wounded and gave Republicans a perfect example of why the country needed an amendment that would force states to protect the rights of American citizenship, especially the enumerated rights of speech and assembly. That fall, Republicans won in a landslide victory and have received a mandate to secure the ratification of the 14th Amendment and the protection of enumerated constitutional privileges and immunities. So, in sum, I believe that all of this evidence suggests that scholars have been wrong to equate the Comedy Clause and the Privileges or Immunities Clause. These texts are different, and they cover different sets of rights. Secondly, I think that we've been wrong to assume historical silence about the original understanding of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Not only was there a broad public discussion about the need to protect the privileges and immunities of national citizenship, that discussion indicates a broad public understanding that the amendment would protect enumerated rights, such as those listed in the first eight amendments. Finally, 
I discovered no evidence that anyone read the clause as nationalizing unenumerated common law rights. Instead, I discovered significant evidence that moderate Republicans repeatedly rejected attempts to nationalize the general subject of civil rights in the states. What we have then is a clause that critically expands American freedom, but it does so in a manner that preserves the basic federalist structure of the Constitution. So that's a basic summary of the book. Well, thanks very much, Kurt. It is an absolute honor to be uh, talking about your terrific book here on the Federalist Society podcast. I read the book in one sitting because it was so well written and and so intriguing. It's it's really an important contribution to this this area of constitutional law that's it's really been a source of confusion and debate for a very long time. So I think lots of people are going to be talking about it, and rightfully so. And I want to just start, yeah, I guess it's the professor in me that just sort of wants to start at the beginning and work my way out. Um, it's a habit. And, you know, so let's start with the text again. You, you quoted it yourself, and uh, let's remind our listeners. It says, uh, 14th Amendment, Section 1, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. So the question is, of course, what, what did they mean when they put these words in there, the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States? Well, whatever they are, they belong to citizens of the United States. So the question is, what, what are they, right? And, and we right. know as lawyers that this is, this is a legal term of art. I mean, that, that, those words mean almost nothing to lay people. And as lawyers, we all at least agree on the idea that privileges or immunities are, are legal shorthand for rights of some sort, yes. right? That's so the right. question is, what, what rights are we talking about here? Which, which rights of citizens of the United States can no state mess with under the 14th Amendment? Which ones, right? Because we have a lot of rights as a citizen of the United States. Are we talking about, for example, one option might be the first nine amendments of the Bill of Rights. The Tenth Amendment, I think most people would agree, would be superf superfluous here and not applicable. But, but arguably, you could say the privileges or immunities of the United, of United States citizens includes the first nine amendments. Or maybe okay. you want to be slightly more parsimonious and say, no, 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 it's only the first eight amendments, which I actually think is the position that you are taking in your book. And then you might say, well, well it, it, but, but you go further than that. You say, well, it's not just the first eight amendments. It's the other rights that are enumerated right. exactly. elsewhere in the Constitution. So that would include the stuff like Article One, Section 9 stuff, ex post facto, habeas corpus, and, and, maybe, and maybe some others you concede at some point. Right. Okay, so anything that is enumerated in the Constitution and, and is arguably some sort of right given by the Constitution would be the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States under the 14th Amendment and thus applicable or binding on the state sovereigns as well as the federal sovereign. All right, so, so let's, let's take those words for a second, right? Privileges and immunities. I, I think it's fascinating to me how little we think about the difference between those two words. And if you go back way back to you know, English common law, there's a difference between those two things, which is why they're packaged together in this legal term of art, privileges and immunities, privileges or immunities, right? Because the mm -hmm. Article 4 talks about privileges and immunities. The 14th Amendment talks about privileges or immunities, but they're always sort of lumped together. And it's because the words mean different things, right? So a privilege was understood from our 
ancestry in Great Britain, uh, our legal ancestry, to be something that you got as a subject or now a citizen from your monarch, from your government. The government gave you a privilege. You weren't born with it. Your governors gave you a privilege. Contrast that to an immunity. The conceptualization of an immunity is something that no lawful government can take from you. It is an immunity from government, whether it's the monarch in the UK or here, you know, our governments, uh, state and federal in the United States. So an immunity is an immunity from government. It is something that is an area of no power, for lack of a better way of putting it. And so what would an immunity be? An immunity would be arguably natural rights, things that no government rightfully can take from you, such as the right to keep and bear arms, such as the right to assemble, the right to speak, the right to follow your conscience and practice or exercise your religion. So if you just take the words, it looks like privileges and or immunities refers to some set of rights that include both sort of civil or political rights, the right to trial by jury, the right to counsel, the right to vote, uh, as well as natural rights or immunities. So I do think there's more to this debate than just enumerated rights. You're not surprised by that. We've talked about this before, and I tend toward the libertarian end of the spectrum. Right. That's not a surprise to anyone who's familiar with some of my work. And I do very much admire what you are trying to do here. You are doing some heavy lifting with this book, because I think one of the things you are struggling to do is answer the question that Alan Gura couldn't answer in before the Supreme Court in the McDonald's in the oral City, Chicago before case. the Supreme Court. Right. He, they, they pushed him on a limiting principle, and he couldn't do it. And, and God bless him, Alan Gura is a very bright lawyer, and he's done a lot of great things to defend the Constitution. But at that moment, he didn't have the answer. He's not the only one who's never had that answer. Ask Solicitor General Verrilli in the Obamacare case. But, but he couldn't, and that really doomed him, I think, in his quest to get a majority of the court in McDonald to buy his argument that the Second Amendment was binding on the states because of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. He got Thomas <laughs> uh, in that well, case. Well, potentially. Potentially got Thomas, and Thomas he, but, certainly, I, I, uh, I think it's not – you don't have to read between the lines too much. But he didn't get Scalia. And one of the things that Scalia said in his – concurrence in McDonald's was that it's really basically too late to turn back the clock. We've gone down the road of incorporating the Bill of Rights through this thing that we call substantive due process, and, and it's working well enough. So I, Justice Scalia, am not willing to sort of jettison all of that jurisprudence and now say that we should base our incorporation of the Bill of Rights on the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And one of the reasons why I think Justice Scalia was reticent to do that is because he and the conservatives on the court have had some success in cabining substantive due process through their case law by requiring things like the Glucksberg two-part test. First, you have to carefully articulate 
the right being asserted, and then you have to ask whether that right being asserted is deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition. And by having that hook to history, the conservatives on the court feel like they have some security in cabining or limiting principle to substantive due process. But when you go with privileges or immunities and you start from scratch, essentially, you lose all of that potential limiting principle. And I think they're scared of that, and I think you know that. And even though almost every serious constitutional scholar I know thinks that the Bill of Rights was made binding on the states by the privileges or immunities clause and not the silly substantive due process stuff that they've made up, even the conservatives on the court like Scalia don't want to go there. Even your self-confessed originalist on the court don't want to go there. And it's because because they're afraid that it's going to open the Pandora's box. They're afraid it's going to open the Pandora's box, and the reason why they're afraid of that is because, quite honestly, they don't know why the Privileges or Immunities Clause applies or should be read to apply the Bill of Rights against the states. And, and so they have an instinct that, that these are fundamental rights that ought to be enforced against the states, but because they don't have a theory and because they don't have a historical understanding of the clause, they really are facing a black box. And they would be hard put to explain why that black box includes some rights and not and not other rights. Now, they were therefore looking for encouragement or looking for some type of advice or help from Alan Gura in his argument where he was encouraging them to incorporate the Second Amendment. But they would need some type of limiting principle. Please explain to us. I think it was Ginsburg who specifically asked the question. Please right. explain to us what the limits are, you know, uh, of these protected privileges or immunities. And, of course, Gura replies, it's impossible to fully enumerate all the privileges right. and he immunities. Right, the Corfield versus Coriel approach. And that is, that is his understanding of, of the privileges or immunities clause. And I think he was being quite sincere, and I think that it was great for him to honestly answer the question. I think it would have been better for his client if he had demurred, not lie, but simply demurred and say, all we have to answer today is incorporation of the Second Amendment. Right. But nevertheless, he gave He a, wouldn't he have gotten away with that, though. <laughs> he, he gave an expansive answer because he sincerely believes that it, is, it does protect an unlimited set of rights. And I think he's quite incorrect. And here's where I think he goes wrong. Alan, in giving his answer, I think that Alan Gura was talking about the privileges and immunities of human beings. And this is kind of where you were going in the beginning, talking about the original conception of privileges or immunities as discussed by Blackstone and earlier legal thinkers about what, who are we before God and before, and before our government. And they were trying to find the ultimate answers, the ultimate truth about privileges and immunities and those powers that God uh, would allow into governments and other powers that God would keep within the individual, individual conscience. And so I think, I think that it, it is quite correct to think of privileges and immunities in the abstract as including ideas about natural uh, natural rights. And that conversation has always included discussions of natural rights. But we're not talking about privileges or immunities of human beings. We're talking, no, I know. About, we're talking privileges about privileges or immunities of the United States. And but let me push back, though, because... Well, well, okay, go ahead. Well, let me just push back for a second, though, because when you see various people who supported the 14th Amendment Privileges or Immunities Clause take the floor of Congress to talk about it, they 
constantly referred, just like Justice Bushwad Washington did in Corfield versus Coriel, talked about privileges or immunities as being a phrase or a legal term of art that encompassed a lot of things, including natural rights, and these were privileges and or immunities that were enjoyed by citizens of all free governments. You see that phrase over and over again. These are privileges and or immunities that are enjoyed by citizens of all free governments. So if they're enjoyed by citizens of all free governments, I assume the the government of the United States is a free government, and therefore the citizens of the United States would enjoy them as well. Well, And if that's the case – yeah, go ahead. Well, it depends on who we're talking about. We'd have to get into the specific reference. Um, Well, let's take – what's the outcome – I, I have a couple examples. James Wilson. Oh, right? please. Good example. Um, good example. You, you mentioned Trimble, a yes, Republican senator from Illinois. Example. William Lawrence, from a Republican from Ohio. Not um, as influential as Trimble and Wilson, but fine. Even Jacob, Jacob Howard, the, the senator, the Senate sponsor of the 14th Amendment. Um, and from, there you have I think it was from stop. Michigan. Huh? There you'd have to stop. And so let me do some explaining for just a second, because there's a lot of information here that needs to be brought out to remedy earlier erroneous understandings of this debate in the 39th Congress. Now, as you might expect, these politicians had different political philosophies, and historians have traditionally divided them. And by the way, it's not just historians. It's not just the Dunning School of of Reconstruction that has used these labels, but they actually use these labels themselves. There were so-called radical Republicans Absolutely. who were radically, radically nationalist and who believed that they rejected the idea of enumerated federal power. They believed that the federal government had broad powers to enforce um, Congress's conception of civil liberty in the states, and they rejected any idea of federalism in general. And those would be men like Trumbull and like Wilson. And you would often find them speaking in debate about fundamental rights belonging to all free citizens, and that's how they construed Corfield against Coriel and its discussion of privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. However, when they gave those speeches, they were immediately responded to by more moderate and conservative Republicans who did not share that philosophy, who did not believe that we should eradicate federalist separation of power, and who were especially concerned about preventing the federal government, from nationalizing the subject of unenumerated rights in the states. So when Wilson and Trumbull uh, gave their representation of what Article 4 Comedy Clause privileges or immunities were all about, and when they gave their speeches about Corfield against Coriel, these men would then respond to saying, you're wrong. (laughs) That is not what Corfield against Coriel was about. Um, It did not protect some type of fundamental set of substantive uh, natural rights. It simply provided a degree of equal protection for visiting citizens going from state to state. And they were so successful in rebutting the early speeches of Wilson and Trumbull, and again, I go into great depth about this in the book, that the radical Republicans themselves gave up. They conceded the point, and by the end, you have Wilson himself giving a speech explaining that, yes, Corfield against Coriel protected nothing other um, than providing a degree of equal protection of a limited set of rights within the states. So you can't just 
talk about different speeches regarding privileges or immunities in uh, the Reconstruction Congress. You have to look at how the debates proceeded, and when you do that, you find out that actually there was a far more moderate conception of Article 4 and one that never would have gone in the direction of nationalizing unenumerated civil rights in the states. I hear what you're saying, but I think you're overreading some of the responses to Wilson, to Trimble, to Lawrence, to Woodbridge. And, you know, I think that I understand why you're trying to do it, too. I mean, you're trying to do it because what you want to do is prevent is, is present, you know, a limiting principle, something that the conservatives on the court today can get on board with, feel comfortable with switching from substantive due process to privileges or immunities and feeling like when they make that switch, it's not going to open the floodgates to all kinds of recognition of unenumerated rights, which, as we know, most conservatives don't uh, want to do, although some conservatives of the libertarian ilk would. And, and I admire that effort, but I think that trying to say that some of these statements are just statements of radical Republicans, even though they are Republicans who supported the amendment, and to somehow box them and put them aside and saying their version of things is wrong, and therefore what I'm I'm going to label to be the moderate Republicans is right, I think is parsing legislative history a little too carefully. I, I, I think, as, again, I appreciate what you're trying to do, frankly, but I'm not sure it's entirely convincing. And and I, I guess I, another couple points I would like to make is that, you know, you, you, you try to say, for example, you don't have to overrule Slaughterhouse to agree with you. Um, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've gone back and read Slaughterhouse pretty carefully, Justice Miller's majority opinion there and uh I don't I don't see how you get there. I mean, he's pretty clear when he lists the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States protected by the 14th Amendment. Uh he does not mention all of the Bill of Rights. In fact, the only portion of the Bill of Rights he even mentions is the right of peaceable assemble uh, assembly. And I think that's odd because clearly he could have very easily ticked off, you know, the right to keep and bear arms, the right to free speech, the right to exercise of religion, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he didn't mention a single one of them. He talks about silly stuff like access to seaports, you know, stuff that, you know, you, you know, which is why it came out 5-4. You get all the four dissenters saying, wait a second, you know, majority, you mean we just fought a bloody civil war to make sure that the citizens in the states had right of access to seaports. He, he doesn't take your position. He, he, Justice Miller in Slaughterhouse, the majority opinion, definitely does not say that the Privileges or Immunities Clause you know, incorporated the entirety of the enumeration and enumerated constitutional rights, including the Bill of Rights, uh, to the states. And as you yourself, I think, concede at some point, Cruikshank just a couple years later slammed the door shut to the extent you had any, you know, inklings about that. So, yeah, I think you do have to overrule Slaughterhouse, don't you, to to reach your result. And the other thing I'd like to just get your uh, thoughts on, because I, I think it's fascinating, is the whole, you know, debate about the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and the Freedmen's Bureau Act of 1866 and how those play into uh, Congress's understanding of what it was doing in the 14th Amendment. Oh, well, okay. And that's, okay. So, three, so three things, right? One, whether or not I've um, overread the yeah. I, no, you started with You started with whether or not um, I've overread the evidence because I'm trying to provide a limiting principle, and so therefore haven't given full value 
uh, to the evidence that's there. Yeah, I'm not sure how much and we then can secondly, kick, kick that dead horse around, but my, my new points were slaughterhouse well, and the no, two bills. No, you don't get to do that. Um, no, I mean, I, I, you kick it around all you want, but we only have 20 minutes. Okay. Readers should know. Readers should know something surprising that they probably don't know. And one, of course, I, I invite them to read the evidence to see you know, whether or not to support it. But something that I think a lot of readers don't know is that the term civil rights was removed from the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And it was expressly removed by James Wilson, who wanted it in there, due to concerns that it would be read as granting Congress the power to nationalize unenumerated civil rights in the states. And so that's an important part of the evidence. I think it's surprising to people. And again, it represents the moderate um, heft um, and the uh, moderate Republican position within the Congress. Now, secondly, jumping to well, that, I mean, I, let me just let me just respond to that very quickly. I mean, you can take the word "civil rights" out of the Civil Rights Act all you want, but you still have the substance of the Civil Rights Act, which included things like, you know, all all the economic liberties, making, enforcing contracts, giving evidence, buying and conveying property. You know, all of that stuff Absolutely. that most people would would consider to be civil rights. That's that's correct. And what it did and what the moderate Republicans allowed to go forward was not a provision that suggested we were nationalizing the substance of civil rights, but one which required um, equal protection of laws in the states that were not being equally enforced. And, of course, that's what the Civil Rights Act says, um, that you cannot deny equal enforcement with black people as far as, as, as far as what you provide for white people. So it's an equal protection clause. And I very much agree with those scholars who read the 14th Amendment as, in fact, requiring the states to provide equal protection um, of its laws, and that that was a basic concern of the members of the 39th Congress, both radical, moderate, and conservative. But that's not the argument of libertarians. The argument of libertarians is that it went further and not only required equal protection of state-secured law, but it actually nationalized the substance right. of these laws in the states. Right. And which there's is, no evidence. Which is the that step, I think. Forward. Well, that's the additional step that I think the Freedmen Bureau Act does that arguably the Civil Rights Act of 1866 does not because it doesn't have that equal protection language in it. Uh, and they're both grounded clearly in the 14th Amendment. There, there, you know, there were the reason Johnson vetoed both of them was because he thought the 13th Amendment alone, which he was right about that, would not sustain those acts. And so that put a lot of pressure on Congress to then turn around and pass the 14th Amendment. And if there's any clause in the 14th Amendment that you know uh, is applicable, that would be the power source for both those acts, it has to be the Privileges or Immunities Clause. So, I mean, your, your argument clause. may work with the Civil Rights Act, but it, it doesn't work, I don't think, with the Freedmen's Bureau Act. Well, but, he vetoed the Freedmen's Bureau Act, and they weren't able to overcome his veto. They did they overcome it. Overcome his, no, they didn't overcome his veto. That's another chapter in the book. They, they, the, the Freedmen's Bureau Act, as it had been drafted at that time, unduly no, the original, Right, but they turned around and they reintroduced it, and they passed it again. Over. They re they reframed it again. They reframed it again. But the original failure to override Johnson's veto was due to their concerns that, as drafted, a simple re-upping of the Freedmen's Bureau Act was too intrusive upon the states. And I talk about this. Other people have talked about this as well. Earl Maltz and William Nelson and others, as the failure that that initial failure to override the veto 
was another indication that the controlling ideology within the 39th Congress was the ideology of the moderates and the conservatives, and nothing was going to be passed unless it met with their approval and uh, reflected their particular concerns about limited expansion of federal of federal power. So I'm not denying that they weren't, uh, they weren't able to forward an agenda, but it had to be an agenda that met the concerns of the moderate, uh, the moderate Republicans. And, and so basically what I'm arguing is that, yeah, equal protection, that's why the Civil Rights Act got through. But when it comes to substantive individual rights, the only consensus they could get as to those rights would be the protections of the ones which were already in the Constitution uh, itself. You could go I ahead and protect that. those. I understand what you're saying, although, federal. again, I think you're reading the whole Freedmen's Bureau situation a little bit too simplistically because they did override the second veto. It was vetoed twice, and they did override it again. But, uh, but well, there but really, I would simply share – I'm simply sharing the same approach to, um, to the Freedmen Bureau's Act and its veto as has been written by Earl Maltz and William Nelson. So, again, you can disagree with that, but I, I think they basically had it right. Yeah. All right. So, so I mean, I, I, again, I, I think it's very interesting, too, that when you talk about enumerated rights, and you and I have had this discussion for years about the Ninth Amendment, kind of a fun back and forth, uh, because, you know, the Ninth Amendment clearly does not itself enumerate any rights. It just talks about others retained by the people. But it itself is an enumeration. It's in the Constitution, and it clearly is a bookmark for the idea that there are unenumerated rights. So, I mean, you know, maybe talk to your listener a little bit about how you how you can say that the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States doesn't include the privilege or immunity to have some unenumerated rights recognized by the courts because the language of the Ninth Amendment is it shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. I mean, how is it that that your privileges or immunities as citizens of the United States would not include reference to the Ninth and only the first eighth plus, you know, the other stuff? Right, and I think that's a very important, very important question, and and one that Randy Barnett has pressed as well in his book Restoring the Lost the Lost Constitution, and the idea there, as I understand it, as I understand the argument, is that scholars like um, Randy Barnett concede that the Ninth Amendment is not applicable against the states, at least not directly applicable against the states, but that through the adoption of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, the unenumerated rights component of the original Ninth Amendment. Uh, becomes applicable against the states as one of the enumerated privileges or immunities of citizens of citizens in the United States. Right. And I think, and I actually think that that's that's correct. Although it doesn't lead to the result that um, uh, that Randy Barnett and others have um, have claimed. Now, the, the easy response, and again, I think it's too easy, and it is it isn't one that I take in the book. Um, although I think I do think it's indicative of the thinking of the 39th Congress. An easy response would be. Well, when they talked about the enumerated privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, they talked about the first eight amendments. Of course, that's Jacob Howard's speech and and others as as well. And they did not, with very few um, uh, exceptions, um, they did not consider the Ninth Amendment to be expressive of the same kind of um, fundamental right that was now going to be protected against the states. And I think I understand why they talked about the first eight amendments as opposed to the ninth and tenth amendment. And I think the reason for that has been because as of 1868, there had been a long history of both the ninth and the tenth amendments as being read by courts and constitutional treatise writers as federalist provisions that retained uh, the rights and powers of the people in the several states. 
and that's why the southern states were able to cite the Ninth Amendment as supporting their right to secede to secede from the Union. So I think the Ninth Amendment was kind of a persona non grata um, to the um, Republicans in the 39th Congress due to its long association um, uh, with federalism, and so they didn't see it as an individual individual right. But be that as it may, the text of, and this is your argument, I think, the text of the Privileges or Immunities Clause talks about privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, and if that means enumerated rights, well, darn it, the Ninth Amendment is one of those enumerated rights, and I think that's exactly right. The question now becomes, well, what is the rights um, uh, protected right. by the Which Ninth Amendment? Right, which is where you get very interesting in your book, I think, because, you know, you at some point I think you say, it, like, uh, your interpretation of the PRI is encompassing only the enumerated rights in the Constitution is a floor. Well, that, that's, that's right, um, but I agree with you that the Ninth Amendment is one of the enumerated rights that deserves right. judicial, enforce, judicial enforcement. Right, and but so, so how much of a limiting principle is that? Right. If it's just well, the floor and you admit... Okay. Well, I know you where don't think disagree. the Ninth Amendment has has that substance. I mean, I, I understand that you think it's just a sort of a, a, a Federalist place marker like the Tenth. Well, but, no, not at all. Not at all. Okay. That's, a, that's a McAfee's argument. That's not, that's not my argument at all. I think that the Ninth Amendment is a critical component of American liberty. We simply have to understand how it functions. What we know from opinions like uh, those of Anthony Kennedy on the current Supreme Court is that federalism itself is an essential component of individual Yeah, the whole liberty. bond thing. Right. But that, but the, but exactly my question right. <laughs> Yeah. But I mean and that's great and I agree with that. I mean bond is fabulous and think about it. Bond was unanimous, right? I mean so I mean that that's a moment for pause. But but you still, if the Ninth Amendment, if if you're trying to say the Ninth Amendment is really important, but it's not judicially enforceable, or it's not no, enforceable as, in terms not, of in terms of rights again, that's not my argument at all. Okay, but but it's, maybe it's, can you articulate like quickly because I'm sure we're running out of time. What it is that you think the Ninth Amendment would be enforceable as by a court? Well, it's enforceable as it was as a, as a protection of federalism. You are enforcing the principles of the Ninth Amendment anytime you're enforcing a federalist separation of power between the federal government and the states. So it's so basically the just a reflection states, of the Tenth Amendment and no different. The, the Tenth Amendment says all powers not delegated are reserved yeah. to, or denied to the states by the Constitution. Or to the people. Or right. to the states respectively or to the people. And we all know right. that that reference to the people in the Tenth Amendment is a reference to the collective people in the several states. No right. one has ever right. agreed with that. The Ninth Amendment says, oh, and by the way, those powers that have been granted, and here's where we are in a different area than the Tenth Amendment, those powers that have been granted have to be carefully and narrowly construed. What Congress may never argue is that those powers can extend to everything except those rights expressly enumerated in the federal constitution. Right. So whatever um, restrictions are expressly enumerated, there are others retained by the people. There are other restrictions on federal So you power. think the Ninth Amendment is an expression of limitation of powers? Yes. It's a Even restriction though it talks on about rights and the Tenth of... Amendment. The Tenth Amendment is the one that talks about limitation of powers, though. But here's the Ninth Amendment talks started, about rights. Okay. Here's why I started with Justice Kennedy, and here's where I will bring in James Madison. As Justice Kennedy has reminded us, limitations on power are an incredibly important right. 
So the guardian of that limitation on federal power is itself a protection of one of the retained rights of the people. And as James Madison explained, that is exactly what the Ninth Amendment does. It protects the people's retained rights by preventing unduly expansive interpretations of federal power. And that, well, of course, that's really is interesting, speech, but speech I, closing I, the Bank of the United States. As a matter of just like pure sort of contortions of language. I think you're right, but it only makes the Ninth Amendment a reflection of the Tenth Amendment. There's really no need to have both of them, because that's really what the Tenth Amendment does. The Tenth Amendment says the power is not delegated to the United States by its Constitution or prohibited to it by the states or reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. It is a limitation on power. And if it's a limitation on power, then you don't need the Ninth Amendment to say that again. In fact, the Ninth Amendment comes before the Tenth Amendment. So it kind of is really odd as a matter of textual interpretation that those two things well, are actually, basically I saying think, the same thing. I think you just disproved your point. When you look at the language of the Tenth Amendment, it says nothing about the construction of delegated power. It says those powers. You don't have to necessarily say something about construction if, in fact, all you're doing is stating a truism, which is what the Supreme Court in Garcia said the Tenth Amendment was. The construction language is in the Rights Amendment, which is the Ninth Amendment. So, I mean, which is more important, frankly. I mean, there's my libertarian bent again, but. Perhaps the two of us would have different approaches to how we read the text, and I think that's fair enough. I think that's fair. Oh, enough. absolutely. That's but the I would fun say, part. But I would say this. I, w- I would say this because again, the efforts in this book, and also in my previous book, which is specifically about the history of the Ninth Amendment, the my efforts in these books is not so much to present, you know, my reading of the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, as it is to present evidence of how these amendments have been historically understood, and so. At this point, I would simply point to the evidence regarding the Ninth and Tenth Amendment at the times of their adoption. And when we look at that evidence, we find them expressly discussed as working together, even if in different ways, to preserve a federalist separation of power. And that idea of the Ninth and Tenth Amendment as a preservation of federalism, I believe, survived the adoption of the Fourteenth Amendment. So that we continue to have the Ninth and Tenth Amendments as guarding the basic Federalist structure. The only change has been those rights which are specifically enumerated in the Constitution. Those are now applicable against the states. But nevertheless, we continue to have what Justice Kennedy would call the right to Federalist separation of powers. And I think that right needs to be and ought to be judicially enforced. And, and I, I think that's how historically... You know, I don't disagree one bit about the importance no, of federalism. I know, I know. Right. I mean, you and I are, are completely in concurrence on that one. And I'm not even that, that interested anymore about the Ninth Amendment because you and I have gone back and forth on it for so long now. But it, I was just... It, it, it actually is just fascinating to me to see how your conception of the Ninth Amendment affects your new thesis in your new book uh, because you are careful to limit the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States to the first eight amendments. Um, and I'm sure you've had conversations well, you're, you're with them. Of, you're speaking of me, but actually all, I'm, all I've done in this book is present the evidence. Randy did everything he could to try and find evidence about discussions of the Ninth Amendment as part of the discussions of American privileges or immunities, and he didn't find any. Nobody has. So I haven't, left any, I haven't left anything out. It hasn't colored my presentation of the evidence. 
No, and it, it, and it shouldn't be surprising that you wouldn't find that kind of evidence either, because, again, the Ninth Amendment as a place marker for the idea that there are unenumerated rights against government, specifically against the federal government, at least in the beginning, and then potentially also against the state governments once we have the ratification of the 14th Amendment. And to the extent that it is a place marker for these unenumerated rights, you know, the only way you're going to understand what those unenumerated rights are is to dig into natural rights type theory, Corfield versus Coriel type stuff, which is why, you know, so the amendment itself is just a reflection of a philosophy of an idea of unenumerated rights existing out there. And then, of course, you know, the we've struggled since then to to figure out how much power we want to give to judges to define the content of those unenumerated rights. And because we're so afraid of the open-endedness of the Ninth Amendment, we have actually put all the heavy lifting on that now in the word liberty in the due process clause of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment. So, you know, our uh, sort of fear of uh, open-endedness of constitutional rights has perverted, you know, the due process clause clauses, and it's perverted the privileges or immunities clause as well. So, I mean, I, I think that's one of the reasons why I like your book so much is just because I really admire, you know, the the middle ground that you're trying to carve here. I'm not sure that you're entirely um, providing the limiting principle that you think you are, but I think it's very attractive to a lot of people because of that. Well, I'd, and, and thank and thank you for that, and that's that's fair enough. I I would say, in terms of the fear, and in terms of what exactly the, the the fears might be, to begin with, I would characterize the fear of the Supreme Court as uh, as an institutional fear by rule of law people like Justice Scalia, who seek a bright line. Uh, that cabins the discretionary power of the Supreme Court. It's not a fear of natural law or natural uh, natural rights. It's a it's a question of unduly expansive judicial power. That's and then right. in terms of, of of other people, and I think maybe the historical fear, is once again not a fear of discussing what rights uh, we ought to have, and what rights God has instilled upon the human soul which is an ongoing discussion and one with a long and distinguished uh, history, the discussion that we're having, or at least that I'm having in, the, in talking about the Bill of Rights and the passage of the 14th Amendment, has to do with the fear of granting too much power to the federal government. So if we are to deny the federal government the power to construct and enforce its vision of unenumerated individual rights, we would do so not because we're afraid of individual rights. It's because we have some suspicions about the federal government, and we'd prefer to have that conversation on a state level where we are not at all afraid to talk about human relationships, the proper way of caring about people, and the proper kinds of protections that we ought to have in all right. areas and of I, I admire that I mean it's very majoritarianism driven certainly and it and it's it, it, if you've got to pick a branch that you're going to trust I understand the position that you would want to trust the legislative branch since it is you know immediately and constantly accountable to the people in a way that the judicial branch even the elected judges in the state courts are not 
but of course, I mean, it becomes circular at some point because your love of majoritarianism and booting everything back to the state, so it allows you to claim, you know, love of federalism and allows you to uh, claim love of the legislative branch and majoritarianism as opposed to sort of elitist judges imposing their will upon us, uh, especially the unaccountable federal federal ones. But it it doesn't really solve the question of the nature of rights themselves. It really does come back to what rights are you willing to accept and talk about and enforce as a constitutional matter? Because if you're, if you're not willing to have that kind of conversation, you know, they're really not rights. They're just, you know, statutorily allowed or they're really, I mean, they become privileges. You have them unless and until the legislature says you don't have them. You have the right to wear a hat until the, the legislature says you don't. And I'm not sure that that's very fulfilling for rights-focused people, but again, the appeal, I understand, especially for those who are of a conservative ilk and have desires to limit government, especially the judicial branch. And I completely understand why that would be insufficient to those who share a libertarian point of view. Right. And, and this is, you know, the debate between you and I is is the quintessential debate, I think, but, you know, <laughs> under the large conservative federalist society umbrella between those. Isn't it the truth? We represent both sides. We represent That's both right. sides right Two sides of the, the coin. <laughs> uh, and, you know, never shall the two meet. But we meet sufficiently enough that uh, makes for a happy relationship overall. But. Um, oh, it's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you about these things. I, uh, you know, it's, we've been doing it for a long time, and I don't think either one of us ever really budges, but I, I, I have fun every single time we do it. Well, thank you, and thank you for, uh, for this conversation as well. Well, thanks, Kurt. I'm sure you're going to sell a lot of books, as you should, and I hope it gets a lot of attention again, as it should. Well, thank you so much, and again, my, my thanks to, uh, to the Federal Society, and I guess if I had any, any closing words, it would be that I do anticipate um, that this book will become part of a conversation. It's not going to end the conversation. It's not going to end the debate. But I'd, I very much hope at the very least to have brought some new historical evidence to the table. And, and I very much hope that people will give it a look. Thank you for listening to this Federalist Society Faculty Book Podcast. For more podcasts, please visit our website at www.federalistsociety.org forward slash multimedia.